Well, before Christmas comes, we have Thanksgiving first, and uh, I know that, like me, you all are preparing for that holiday this next week, thinking about friends and family and uh, others that you may spend time with. Thanksgiving always makes us think of the events that led to the beginnings of our nation, doesn't it? That's its purpose, to remember that God's blessing has been enjoyed by our our country for a long time, many centuries, a couple centuries. Um, and we think back, I think back even to uh, in grade school, learning about the pilgrims and their voyage and the, their uh, meeting of the Native Americans and forming this feast and having this, the first Thanksgiving meal. And some of that may be traditionalized, I romanticized, I understand that. But it makes me think about those pilgrims because many of them, maybe not every one of them, but many of them were coming to this new land for religious freedom. They were seeking someplace they could come and worship God according to their conscience. Because in what they knew as the old world instead of the new world, that was becoming more and more difficult. And so from the very beginning, Americans value freedom. We value freedom. We value the freedom to create. We value the freedom to build businesses, to shop where we like. We value the freedom to marry whom we want to marry without someone else telling us whom we must marry. There are other cultures who would argue that's not the best way to be married, and that's fair. But we value the freedom. We value the freedom to pursue the kinds of careers that we want to, that we aren't bound by a government who says, you will be this, and you will be this, and you will be educated here. We value the freedom to vote. We value the freedom, most of all, to worship. Our nation's roots were, were planted in conflict to find freedom from tyranny. And regardless of what you think, and there's much discussion about, well, was that right? Would God have honored um, a revolution against a government? But regardless of whether or not you want to argue the rights and wrongs of it at that time, that, those are our roots, seeking freedom from tyranny. We fought again, almost 100 years later, to end the institution of slavery in our country. That did not do away with racism. That did not do away with bigotry. You cannot erase those from the human heart, even with a war. But it did end the institution. Perhaps our nation's greatest symbol stands just outside of New York City the Statue of Liberty. But for all of our love for freedom and liberty, there is a freedom we cannot win for ourselves. There is a freedom that we cannot earn from another's hands, nor can we produce it by our own labors, nor can we purchase it with all the wealth that we have. That is the freedom from sin and the freedom from death, which is the consequence of sin. 
It is the great lie of the evil one to tell people they are free. They are free to live as they like, that they are free to establish right and wrong for themselves, that they are free to choose their own destiny, free to choose God or reject him. This is a deception. Listen to what Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 tells us we were. We were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked We followed the course of this world. We followed the prince of the power of the air. We were sons of disobedience. We lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath. Does that sound free? The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In Romans chapter 6, Paul makes the point that once we presented our members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness... So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free, quote unquote. This is where Paul does the little quote. You were free from righteousness. And when he says free from righteousness, he means you could not live righteously. It was impossible for you or me. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things for which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. There's the ultimate consequence. Slavery to sin is slavery to death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Revelation chapter 3, Jesus puts his finger on the heart's attitude of basically the entire world. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Only Jesus can free us from sin. Only Jesus can clothe us. Only Jesus can salve our eyes Only he can enable us to see. And that freedom is proclaimed in the gospel and nowhere else. We as God's people have repented and believed in him because of the gospel of freedom. And we have inherited this gospel of freedom. And we have inherited with it the calling to proclaim that freedom to others and to receive anyone who will respond.
So if you would, take your Bibles and open to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, we find Paul and company, which now is Silas and Timothy and Luke, on their way to Macedonia, which is Greece. They have been called there in a vision. Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, we remained in this city some days. Now let's stop right there real quick. Philippi is, as you see, a Roman colony. This was the highest status that a city in the Roman Empire could gain. To be born there meant you were a Roman citizen. Automatic Roman citizenship if you're born in the city of Philippi. It was known mainly for two things. It's fierce loyalty to Caesar and its affluence. It was a a wealthy city, a well-to-do city, and it was fiercely loyal to the worship of Caesar. In Philippi, the preaching of the gospel will be very fruitful, and the church planted there becomes one of the strongest and most faithful churches in the New Testament. If you read the letter of Philippians, you will know that no other church partnered with Paul the way the Philippian church did. No other church supported Paul in his gospel mission and participated in that mission like the church in Philippi. This fruitful partnership begins right here in Acts chapter 16 with a story that revolves around the conversion, the salvation of two people. Now, there are others, of course, who come to Christ. There are others who become part of the people of God, but these two demonstrate the immensity of the gospel. One is a woman, the other is a man. She is named, he is not named. She is a merchant with some means. He is a jailer. She is a God-fearer, maybe a Jew. He is a Gentile. She is set free by the gospel at a prayer meeting after hearing the Apostle Paul speak. He is set free by the gospel in a prison after an earthquake. Her salvation seems almost like it's just very peaceful, Her her heart is open to Paul's message and she receives. His is dramatic in the midst of crisis. And yet both mirror one another in that both are immediately baptized along with their entire households and both of them demonstrate their new faith by showing great hospitality and kindness to the Apostle Paul and his team. So again, we see the remarkable variety of people that Jesus saves. Let's look at verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate, this is outside the gate of the city of Philippi, to the riverside where we supposed that there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia 
from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, the fact that there is a smaller group of women gathered to pray tells us that there aren't many Jews, there aren't many God-fearers in the city of Philippi. There may not have even been a synagogue in the city. It required that there be at least 10 practicing male Jews for there to be a synagogue built. This place of prayer was outside the city and probably just an outdoor area like we would think of a park next to the river. The woman, Lydia, probably isn't the only one to respond to the gospel, but Luke highlights her because of the role that she plays in helping the mission team. Luke's detail is amazing, isn't it? And remember, he's with them. And he records that she is from the city of Thyatira, which was a city in Asia Minor. This was one of the areas that Paul and the team had tried to get into, but the Holy Spirit had blocked them and said, you're not going into Asia. There would eventually be a church there, and we know this because Jesus sends them a letter in Revelation chapter 2, one of the letters that he gives to the Apostle John to be delivered to the seven churches in Asia Minor is the church of Thyatira. She is a clothing merchant, particularly purple goods, which means that she, she was involved in the industry of creating and selling higher-end clothes that were dyed in purple. And the way she's described as the head of her household means that she is single, probably widowed. She is a God-fearer. She is a worshiper of God. And Lydia and her household embrace the gospel. They are all baptized, which of course also means that there is faith, there is repentance, and there is a receiving of the Holy Spirit that takes place for Lydia and her household. And she's important to the story because it's her home that becomes the center for the Philippian church's worship. That's where they're going to meet. And this whole story here begins with her hospitality to Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke. And at the very end of this story, you will see it is her home where the brothers are gathered as they make their way out of Philippi. Lydia's generous hospitality demonstrates her faith because those who receive the gospel are moved to provide for those preaching the gospel. We, saw this, we uh, see this in the gospels as well, as Jesus sends out the disciples in teams of two to go and proclaim the kingdom. He says, when you arrive at a city, when someone responds by faith, go to their home and stay there. Don't move around. Stay there and be provided for. That's why he tells them, uh, it's one of those things you read and you go, why would he tell them not to do that? Don't take a purse with you, don't take any money. That's why. You're to depend on God's provision through those who respond to the gospel. That's who Lydia is. And she also demonstrates that God 
continues to provide for those who are bearing the gospel. So Paul and his team, how are they living? How are they traveling? How are they paying for food? They are dependent on the gifts and the hospitality of other believers, whether that's a church that they have, that they have planted that now is supporting them, whether that's from the church of Antioch, or whether that's from believers along the way. Step by step, they are dependent on God's provision. So there is now born a church in Philippi. And so they stay there, and we don't know how long they stay, but they, they are there for many days. Verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their, the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So the slave girl is a fortune teller who makes her owners a lot of money by telling people their futures, by declaring oracles. Her abilities are generated by a spirit of divination, a demonic spirit. The condition may have been a benefit to her owners and maybe even to herself, but we know that God condemns the practice and it's the demon then that enables her to perceive the missionary's identity and really the heart of their message. And this isn't unique. If you read the Gospels, Jesus was often recognized by demons and publicly identified by them, even when people didn't know who he was. The spiritual realm knows. The demons knew. And they would even they would even. Proclaim it. They would see him coming and they would scream through their human possessed and say, flee from us, go away from us, O son of the most high God, or whatever. They say different things in different places. But they would address him and, and cry out for, for mercy. You remember the story in which the, the demoniac cried, the demon cried out, through the man that he was possessing, said, we are legion, and said, please send us into the pigs, which Jesus did. So the demons often know who they are. It's the same thing with the apostle Paul. This demon knows who Paul is, and he knows what he's proclaiming. The girl identifies them as the servants of the most high God, which is who God is, isn't it? 
The problem is that to a pagan audience, that title could have applied to Zeus or any number of deities. She announces their message accurately, the way of salvation, which is also true. But it's also ambiguous because pagan religions had a concept of salvation also. So the problems created by this this girl following Paul and and crying this out is that she's, she's following them around. She's crying this out loud. She's making a spectacle. And she keeps doing this for many days. So it's this day after day after day. She's following them through the marketplace and, and to the place of prayer and wherever they go. And she's just yelling these things. Which is why Paul becomes annoyed. And the word annoyed really means deeply disturbed. And I don't think it's just because Paul is getting grumpy. It's because that what this girl is doing amounts to heckling that is disrupting the preaching of the gospel. Once again, the gospel comes up against the occult. You remember there was Simon the magician in chapter 8. There was Elymas the magician in chapter 13. And this time it is demonic activity. And again, the gospel prevails as Paul commands the evil spirit to leave her. Now, we're not told what happens to the girl. I think we'd like to fill in the blanks with that because Paul has delivered her from this spirit of divination, this demon, that she is grateful and that she would have repented and become a believer. It doesn't say anything about that here. I think we need to keep in mind that the girl is not asking for deliverance. She doesn't ask Paul. If anything, the text would seem to indicate that she's kind of, she's kind of party to this. And yes, she's a slave girl, and so she is making money for her owners. But it may be that this was kind of her claim to fame as well. It may be that delivered of the spirit of divination, she was frustrated and angry. It's hard to know. But Luke focuses on the repercussions. The focus of the story follows the reaction of the slave girl's owners. The owners, deprived of some income now, seize Paul and Silas and drag them to the town center. This is the marketplace. And they drag them there for a little payback. And of course, their accusation has nothing to do with lost income. Instead, they appeal to bigotry and Roman pride. These Jews are disturbing the city. They are trying to uh, make, uh, bring customs in here that, that are beneath us Romans, that are unlawful for us. Now, remember, Paul and, and Silas and Timothy and Luke, they've been in the city now for a little while. They're becoming known. The church is growing And it could be that these these slave owners, these guys, they know who Paul is. They know who Paul and Silas are. They obviously know they're Jews. And with the girl running around behind them for many days already proclaiming this kind of thing, they've already gotten bad press, if you will. And so it could be that the reaction is not they've lost this income, but they are using the overall ministry The overall effects of the preaching of the gospel and how people are turning to Jesus, they are using that 
as an accusation for as grounds for an accusation that they're disturbing the city, that they're just causing trouble. So they are causing a disturbance and they're undermining Roman law, which ironically is exactly what these guys are doing. The crowd joins in in attacking them and the magistrates, these are the local rulers in every Roman colony, have them beaten with rods. So this is a caning and then throw them into prison. In 2 Corinthians 11 verse 25, Paul says three times, I was beaten with rods. This is one of those times. This is an example of what Paul means when he writes, we are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies we are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Getting beaten and thrown in prison was just a way of life for the Apostle Paul. And it is the life of Jesus that is made known here as well. Look at verse 25. About midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. So here they are. It's midnight. They are praying vocally, and they are singing hymns of praise to God. And this great earthquake seems to be located just below the prison. So much so that it shakes the foundations. And not only are the doors all sprung open, but anyone who is clasped in irons, who is tied down, is immediately freed. Everything falls off. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself. We are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Now, this is an amazing scene, isn't it? Paul and Silas praying and singing in the middle of the night. What joy and suffering. Maybe they were praying for justice. Maybe they were praying for deliverance, for freedom, so that they could continue to preach the gospel. Maybe they were praying for the slave girl. But they are singing hymns 
And this singing of hymns points to their praising of God. They're exalting his character. They're putting their trust in his deliverance. And the prisoners, this is the most remarkable thing, the prisoners are listening to them. So their joy and their praise is impacting everyone around them. As he does at other times in Acts, God intervenes to deliver his servants and vindicate the gospel, this time with an earthquake. Remember, Peter was in prison and God sent an angel to walk him out. This time he uses an earthquake. An earthquake that shakes the foundations, opens all the doors, and unfastens all the bonds. Of course, this is going to wake up the jailer who's ready to take his own life when he sees all the doors open because he knows that death is the penalty for losing any prisoners, let alone all of them. And he just assumes when he sees all the gaping doors open that they've all gone. And yet, nobody's gone. Nobody's gone. Not even the other prisoners. Could it be that the impact of Paul and Silas's singing and testimony has kept them in the cells as well? So Paul cries out. He prevents the jailer from killing himself. So even when freedom is offered to him, at the point of crisis, Paul is concerned about the jailer's life and well-being. And the jailer, overwhelmed with emotion, maybe gratitude, he calls for lights, that's torches, they run, they grab torches, and they go down into the prison. And it's overwhelmed with this gratitude. He recognizes Paul and Silas as the men who had been praying and singing. And something connects their care for him and their integrity in staying in the cell with their message, what they have been preaching. And remember, they've been in the city now for some time. The jailer may have even heard their message. But he connects the two, and he connects this earthquake, this powerful act of God, with the vindication of the salvation they are preaching. There's only one question to ask. What must I do to be saved? So Paul and Silas tell him the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then they unpack what that means by speaking the word of the Lord to him. In other words, there's a longer explanation here. Now, this is all in the middle of the night. Presenting the gospel to the jailer and then preaching the gospel to his entire household. The jailer then responding. Did you see this? How did Lydia respond? Come into my house. Stay with me. Let my, let my household be a, a home for you and comfort. Let me feed you. Let us take care of you. What does the jailer do? He pulls them out and he dresses their wounds. They have been beaten with rods and then thrown immediately into prison. And the jailer under orders has put them on the inside of the prison and he has bound them. Now what does he do? He takes them and he doctors them. He takes care of their wounds. Then they baptize everybody. Again, remember, this is in the middle of the night. 
They just baptize everybody right there. And then the jailer says, come up to my house. And he has a meal for them. And they eat together. This is how joy responds. This is the joy that comes from believing in the gospel. Verse 35. But when it was day, so this is basically all night long. They do this from midnight until whenever. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police, these are guards, the police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Oopsies. This is a problem for the magistrates. Because number one, Roman citizens get a trial. They are never condemned and arrested without a trial. Number two, Roman citizens are never beaten with rods. That is not a punishment for a Roman citizen. There might be other consequences, but that was not one of them. And it's interesting that Paul and Silas seem to leave town at their leisure. And Paul calls them out for this. Wait a second. You're trying to make it a secret thing. You beat us publicly. You didn't give us any any trial. And now you want to escort us out of town quietly. Now, the magistrates, I don't think, were necessarily trying to be secretive because it's obvious from the text they don't know that Paul and Silas are Roman citizens. Why? Because they were accused of being Jews, which they were. And they jumped to the conclusion that if they were Jews, then they can't be Roman citizens, which was not true. Obviously the case. And so they had just let the people have their way. They had beaten them, and then they had thrown them in prison. And it's kind of like the old Western, where, you know, the hero of the Western blows into town. He goes into the, the saloon, and he gets, you know, someone tries to cheat him. He's always in the right. They cheat him at cards or something, and they, they attack him, and he ends up getting in a fight, and the, the town sheriff throws him in jail and then tells him to leave town. That's what basically has happened. And they're like, okay, it's time for you to get out of town. Be on your way. And Paul calls him on the card, and he says, whoa, 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 no. You have condemned us without a trial, and you have beaten us, and you have thrown us in prison uncondemned Roman citizens, which is the cause of their fear because they can be punished for having done this to Roman citizens. There were laws that protected them. And Paul and Silas then, having received an apology and then being asked as a favor, will you please leave town? 
Actually, go to Lydia's house first to visit Lydia. And the brethren, once they've seen the brothers there, and that's the brothers are, are uh, gathered, where? At Lydia's house. Then they leave town. Now, let's ask ourselves this. How can we be agents of freedom? How can we be agents of freedom? I hope that as you see Lydia's story and as you see the story of the Philippian jailer, you can put yourself in their place. Someone who has received the gospel, who's been convicted of sin. And maybe your conversion and coming to Jesus was a lot like Lydia's. You were sitting in Sunday school or a prayer meeting, you knew the Bible, and suddenly God opened your heart to see. Maybe your story's more like the Philippian jailers. Maybe you were living a life of, of hardness and, and a rebellion, um, and God sent an earthquake, quote unquote, into your life to get your attention and to bring you to your knees. God does both. But if you are either Lydia or the Philippian jailer, you are part of the people of God, and you now have a calling to bring this freedom, the freedom the gospel brings to others. So how can we be agents of freedom? This is our ways of applying this text. Number one, ask the Lord to open hearts. Ask the Lord to open hearts. We have to. Because every human heart begins closed. It begins closed. Nobody ever born began with a heart open to God. Every heart is closed to him. So we have to start here. We must ask. We must be depending on the Lord to open the hearts of people. Only Jesus can open that heart. And he can use even our bumbling to do it. That's good news, isn't it? He can use even our bumbling to do it, even our failures at times. We tend to get wrapped up in our inadequacies. I don't know what to say. I don't know how they're going to react. I don't know what kind of consequences it's going to have here in, in, uh, in the workplace or in this classroom or whatever it is. And we become wrapped up in whether or not we know enough or have the right words or whatever it is. Or we turn to gimmicks. We turn to cleverness, not only as individuals, but churches. We try to entertain people into the gospel and almost try to slip it in on them unawares, as if we can get them into the buildings and get them participating in this and doing this and get everyone fired up, and then we can kind of slip the gospel in. They'll go, well, yeah, I'll take the gospel too, and then they get saved. It's the way a lot of churches function. We turn to gimmicks and cleverness, understanding that Jesus opens the heart and that only Jesus can open the heart is the remedy to both of those, either our fears of inadequacy or our, our temptation to turn to gimmicks and other kinds of ways of manipulating people. Only Jesus opens the heart. You know, Jesus writes to the church in Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3. Philadelphia was one of two 
of the seven churches to whom Jesus writes that receives no word of rebuke, nothing negative said about the church of Philadelphia. And he says to them, uh, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, who closes and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So the church in Philadelphia is a persecuted church, and they are a church before whom the Lord Jesus has set an open door, a door that no one can close. Jesus says, I open the doors, I close the doors. He's not referring to individual hearts here, but he is talking about the ministry of the gospel. He is talking about the life and the vibrancy of the church in the city of Philadelphia. When Jesus opens a door, that door stands open. And when Jesus closes a door, it's not to be opened. So Jesus opens hearts to the gospel. So really, the beginning point then for someone that you care about, someone that the Lord has brought across your path, is to pray for them. It's to pray for them. Not only praying for an opportunity, but praying that the Lord will open their hearts. That the Lord will do something in them. Because it's his mission, his gospel. Number two, turn suffering into mission. Turn suffering into mission. You know what the key is to doing this? It's found in verse 25 here. Praying and singing hymns. Paul and Silas, thrown in prison after having been beaten, are praying and singing hymns. They are trusting God and they are praising him. Praising God in the face of hardship is a declaration of faith in what God says about himself and the rejection of any lies to the contrary. I'll say it again. Praising God in the face of hardship is a declaration of faith in what God says about himself It's saying, I will praise you because of what you have said about yourself, that you are faithful, that you are holy, that you love me, that you have saved me. It is declaration of faith in what God says about himself and the rejection of any lies to the contrary. When we do what is right and faithful and are treated unjustly, when all of our faithfulness is only met with injustice, how do we respond? The lies that assail our hearts are, God is punishing me. God is not with me after all. God is not just. He is not fair. These are lies. To praise him is to reject those lies and to hold steadfastly to the truth that God is exactly who he said he is and that he loves you and me exactly as he has said he loves you and me and that he is with us just as he has said he will be with us. You cannot praise God and doubt him. You can't do this. You can't do both of those things at the same time. When you praise God, 
It is a declaration of your faith in him in the face of any circumstances and lies. And when we praise him, it keeps us alert and ready for gospel opportunities. Paul and Silas are ready for gospel opportunities. And so the earthquake, com- the earthquake comes, their chains fall off, and the doors spring open. And yet, they stay. They stay to rescue the jailer. That's turning suffering into mission. And that's seeing our, uh, that's seeing our suffering as opportunity for the gospel. What difficulty has God brought into your life that you can look at and say, Lord, where here would you have me be alert to a gospel opportunity? Now, that's talking about our suffering, but there's also something to be said for turning other people's suffering into mission. Because often others' hardship is an opportunity for us to bring hope and peace of the gospel to bear in their lives. I think this is one of our greatest opportunities when those who don't know Christ around us begin to suffer and face hardship. To point them to the hope, to, hope, to point them to the peace and the salvation that is found in the gospel. As John Piper writes, sometimes the quickest way to the heart is through a wound. Use those times. Use those times. Not too long ago, I had a a gentleman I was talking with, a neighbor of mine, who just out and told me, yeah, you probably don't know this yet, but my wife and I were getting a divorce. And my wife and I had spent some time with them, getting to know them, with their family, and he's saying, yeah, it'll be better this way. You know, our, our kids are um, just exposed to our arguing and all these kinds of things. It's been a long time in coming and excuses and excuses and finger pointing. And I said, you know, this, this sorrows me. I said, it makes me sad. But you know what? I said, it may be that, and I said, regardless of all that you're saying, I know that it's got it's to gotta be hard for you. It's got to hurt you know what? It may be that the Lord is doing this to get your attention. And I've got to believe and hope that the Lord has something better for you and for your wife. He didn't respond. But that's an example of what I'm talking about. Because there are people all around you whose lives are broken and falling apart. That is fallow ground for the gospel. So, Turn suffering into mission. Thirdly, sacrifice your rights for the gospel. Sacrifice your rights for the gospel. Do you see how Paul and Silas have set aside their rights here? They don't just do it once. They actually do it three times that I can see in the story. There's once in the marketplace when they're being dragged before the magistrates and then sentenced to a beating and then thrown into prison. Not once do Paul and Silas go, hold on a second, Roman citizen right here. They never say it. They simply accept 
They do it again in the jail when the earthquake opens the doors and releases their bonds. They could have made a run for it. And you know what? In, in actuality, it wouldn't have been a lack of integrity. They weren't guilty of anything. They could have left and still had their integrity intact. But they didn't. They stayed for the jailer's sake. But they do this again after having dinner with the jailer. Now think about this. They're invited up to his house, which is probably part of the building, the jail facility, to have dinner with him and his family. The very next verse, the police are sent by the magistrates at the beginning of the day to extract Paul and Silas and send them on their way. And where do they find them? The jailer goes and sends for them. He goes and he relays the information. They are still not sitting around in the jailer's house eating dinner or breakfast when the police show up. They are back in their cells. Which means that after dinner with this newly converted jailer and his family, after he has dressed their wounds and given them dinner, I think Paul and Silas said, hey, you better send us back to our cells. You better put us back in there. Because if not, you're going to get in trouble. And the jailer said, I hate to do this, but you're right. That's the right thing to do for now. So a third time, they give up their rights And there doesn't seem to be any conversation with the jailer about, by the way, we're Roman citizens. No, they go back to their cells to be found in the morning by the guards and the magistrates. And at that point, then they bring up their Roman citizenship. What causes somebody to do this? It's about a mindset. It's about how we see life and all of our circumstances You can approach life with your rights at the forefront of your mind. I have certain freedoms, I have certain protections, I can demand certain things, I can have certain expectations. After all, I'm paying for this. You can have all of your rights, all of your freedoms at the forefront of your mind, or you can live life with the gospel opportunity at the front of your thinking that some disadvantage or some, some, uh, somebody taking advantage of you or being wronged or treated unjustly might actually be a door for the gospel. And receiving that without any kind of complaining might be the gospel opportunity that you've been looking for. That's having the gospel at the front of your thinking. Listen to Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, what's the world? It's thinking, it's attitudes, it's its worldview, how it sees life, including freedom and rights, insisting on my rights and my freedoms first is just as conforming to the world 
as many other things. We don't usually think of that as conforming to the world, though. We usually think of that as normal. And sometimes sacrificing our rights is what is good and acceptable and perfect. And you notice how you know when that is is by discerning. And how do you discern? By having your mind renewed. Having your mind renewed. So don't conform to the world. On the other hand, you can sacrifice your rights for the gospel. And on the other hand, leverage your rights for the gospel. This is good. Because next morning, the magistrates come. They want to pull Paul and Silas out. They want them to go secretly. And what does Paul do? It's fascinating, isn't it? Paul does not hunch his shoulders and stoop over and go, can I tell you about Jesus? This time, he does not accept it. This time, he calls them out on the carpet and says, no, I'm a Roman citizen. Now, I, you know, I'm thinking, if, like, probably like at least some of you are thinking, oh, why didn't you say that before they caned you, right? And we already know the answer to that because there was a gospel opportunity. But I'm a Roman citizen. And the reason Paul does this, if I understand the text correctly, Paul does this because there is, there is a concern, not only for Paul, but Luke, in writing the entire book of Acts, there is a concern for the world's perspective of the gospel, how the world perceives the gospel and the church. And Paul has been dragged into a public courtroom with no trial, beaten, and thrown in prison. What does that communicate to the rest of the city of Philippi about the gospel that he's preaching. So Paul now leverages his rights as a Roman citizen for the sake of the gospel so that the gospel is free of being maligned by the city, by the culture, by the magistrates, by those in power by the men who dragged them into the court in the first place. Paul now leverages his rights as a Roman citizen for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the gospel. So, it's one, time, it's one thing to, at times, sacrifice your, right, uh, sacrifice your rights for the gospel. At other times, it might be good and acceptable and perfect to leverage your rights for the sake of of the gospel. If you can influence our government or our culture for the gospel, then do so. Use those freedoms. That's what they're for. It's why God has given them to you. It might mean voting. It might mean at some time protesting or picketing. Can those things be right? They can be at times. It can be right for Christians to have a public voice and to say, that is wrong. This is right. And to do so in a legal way, that can be the right thing to do. I want to close with this. One more, one more passage. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Okay. 
beginning in verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. So it doesn't really matter. Now that you belong to Christ, none of of that matters. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Now we, in the West, in America, we expect him to say, then fight for your freedom. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. So what? What does slavery in this life mean? It's meaningless for eternity. has nothing to do with eternal status. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. That'll be better for you. Might be better for the gospel, depending. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman in the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You're really never not a slave. You're either a slave to sin and death. You might be a slave in life, but you're, you're a slave of Christ if you're in Christ. Jesus is the equalizer. That's what Paul's saying. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Remain slave, a slave of Christ. Men are not to rule you. Not meaning government, not meaning even being a slave. Don't be concerned about it. But but live under God, not under men's thoughts and their systems. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. What's he saying? You can almost hear Paul saying something like, were you an American when you came to Christ? Then stay an American. Be an American. Were you born on the wrong side of the tracks and then you came to Christ? Great, you're from the wrong side of the tracks, whatever that is. Were you born in a socialist system of government? Do not be concerned about it. Doesn't matter. Has nothing to do with eternity. And this world is passing. It's passing. It's passing. Remain as you are. See the world through a renewed mind. That might mean sacrificing your rights sometimes, and that will mean leveraging your rights at other times. Right, so if we're going to love freedom, let us first love the freedom of the gospel, the freedom the gospel gives from sin and death. Let's prize that freedom before all others, right? Let's be faithful to the pattern and the charter set for us in the book of Acts.